good, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> good book. <laughs> good book. Yep. Well, up. Five out of five. Five stars. Yep. The end. <laughs> Welcome to Beyond the Lamppost, a podcast dedicated to engaging the world of the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm Shannon. And I'm Stephen. Here we reflect on our experience as siblings growing up in Narnia and journey deeper into its world with the eyes of young adults. Today, we're discussing The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, chapters 5 through 8. One thing I forgot to mention last time was what the character of Reepicheep meant to me in my childhood. Mm, what did the character of Reepicheep mean to you in your childhood? Well, I think I might have briefly mentioned this before, but when I was six years old, I had an epic Narnia birthday party. It was epic. It was epic. It was I was memorable. Lucy. Stephen was Peter. Mm-hmm. But I think the most memorable thing about that party for me was when our violin teacher, who was very close to us... And who was very tall... And who's very tall came as Reepa Cheap. Mm-hmm. With paper mouse ears, yes. a sword. It was amazing. All but of that. she like walked in the house like a method actor. Like she just was Reepa Cheap the whole time. Mm-hmm. And Standing I Standing up straight, yeah. lightly and bearing. It was so great. And I think she like called me, you know, Queen Lucy or whatever. It was it was wonderful. And I specifically remember sitting at the table and she was spooning out rainbow ice cream and telling us about Reepa Cheep's adventures on the voyage of the Dawn Treader. Wow. And I think she specifically told the story of fighting the sea serpent on the mm. high seas, which is in this section. She clearly must have known these books very well. Of course. No, but that's What that just... birthday was this? What age were Six. you? Six. Six. Six, yep. So I think that's why Reepa Cheep is so near and dear to my heart. And also he's just very lovable. He really is. Yeah. You know what else is lovable? What? Chickens. Have Sacred you noticed chickens? the chickens? Well, there are so many. There, The chickens. There are chickens on the there Dawn Treader. We sort of glossed chickens? over it last time. Well, about the sacred chickens. So Let's, I've already told you about yes. this, but I have a sneaking suspicion that the chickens on the Dawn Treader are a reference to the sacred chickens of ancient Rome. Sacred chickens. So it, when it's describing the Dawn Treader early in the book, it says that there was a chicken coop and Lucy fed the hens, but they drowned in the storm. It said the poultry drowned in the storm no! in chapter five. Unfortunately, they had to be thrown overboard, which is really sad. But you wonder, like, why are they bringing this up? Is this just kind of plot fluff? And maybe it is, but I sort of have a sneaking suspicion that it's a reference to these sacred chickens of ancient Rome. What are the sacred chickens of ancient Rome? Well, so there was this this flock of chickens in ancient Rome, they were used for divination, for f- discerning the will of the gods, for omens. So it was a good omen if they would eat and drink, and it was a bad omen if they wouldn't. And normally you could manipulate them to, to give a favorable omen because you just don't give them food for a while, and then, of course, they'll eat okay. if they want to. Yeah. But uh, there was, there's even a story about this during um, the Punic Wars, when Rome was fighting against Carthage, they actually took the sacred chickens with them out to sea. Okay. And the chickens were not giving a favorable omen. They weren't eating or drinking. Okay. And, and the general was angry at this because he really wanted to go to war, to go to the battle against the Carthaginians, but the priest was saying, well, the chickens aren't eating. Maybe they said, were just seasick. 
Maybe they were, but he said, all right, well, the chickens can drink seawater, and he threw them overboard. Ew. Okay, so what does this have to do with the voyage down Twitter? Why would Lewis make that connection? Well, that's a good question. Maybe he's just doing it for fun. It's just kind it's of like a little a private little joke. Thing. You know, there could be a connection to the god Apollo. Apollo is the Roman and Greek god of the sun. Yeah. And the sun is sort of the dominant planet in this book, as we've talked about, and sometimes that comes out in sneaky and hidden ways, and yep. this might be one of them. It's a little bit speculative, but I wonder if it could be the case. You know, just the fact that there was such a thing called sacred chickens, that just makes me really happy That's for some reason. That's just a very amusing thought. It is. It's true. It's great. Mm-hmm. Okay, Stephen, let's dive in. Hit me with a synopsis. The voyage of the Dawn Treader continues as they sail forth. They hit a storm, but don't worry, they get out of it. Although the chickens don't. Sorry, sacred chickens. They land on an unknown island that is ominously silent. Eustace Mm. wanders off and is transformed into a dragon, which is a story we will get into quite a lot more later. Everyone doesn't know where he is, etc., etc. He he ultimately comes back as a human and tells a story of how Aslan came to him in the night and transformed him from the dragon that he had become back into a boy. There's quite a lot to dive into in that story, so I won't give too many details here. After the adventure on Dragon Island, they continue sailing and have two narrow escapes, as the title of Chapter 8 tells us. They have a run-in with a giant sea dragon, which tries to coil itself around the Dawn Treader, but they manage to push it away and escape through the coils. After this, they land on another island that is also ominously silent, which has a, in which they discover a lake that turns anything that enters its water into gold. They find a, a statue underneath, which apparently might be one of the Narnian lords, a statue in the water. They find anything that touches it turns to gold. It awakens the greed of Caspian, Edmund, Eustace, even Lucy and Reepicheep to a certain degree. They start quarreling over it, but then they see Aslan in the distance, and they're brought back to their senses again. They name the water Goldwater Island, or... Even better, as Reepicheep said, Deathwater Island. And that's where we leave off. Okay, folks, giving a synopsis is not as easy as it sounds, so let's just hear it for Stephen. Yay, good job. Where do we start with this, Stephen? I guess we have to dive into um, Eustace turning into a dragon. Let's. There's so much here. All week long we've been looking at each other saying, like, there's so much here because... Oh my gosh. There was so much there. There's also the storm at sea. There are so many things that like stuck in my mind though from this book from long before. One was actually when they were at sea and Eustace was thirsty and Lucy gave him extra portions of her water, which was of course very kind. And she said that girls don't get as thirsty as boys. And I had always kind of wondered about that. And I don't actually know if that's true. I tried to do a Google search. I tried to do a Google search for that, like, you know, men being more thirsty than women, and it didn't give me what I was looking for. You know what? No, I think, oh, so (laughs) gross. (laughs) I think some, like, weird assumption that men are working more than women because women don't work, so they would get more thirsty. It's also possible that there's just a biological difference there. Maybe. 
Okay. If anyone knows about this, feel free to fill us in. I know. Please. Anyone this is very puzzling. Yeah. Very puzzling. I actually almost wonder if it was just Lucy making it up because she was being kind. Exactly. And then Eustace but, is being arrogant saying, oh, yeah, well, of course, I always wondered that. But I'm that like, was probably the case. I, whenever I read that, I kind of feel like, girl, Lucy, look out for yourself. I, I know you're a kind and valiant person, but just... You gotta take care of yourself, girlfriend. But she's also being sacrificial and loving at the same time. She chose that. She chose that for, for herself. That was an action that she wanted to perform for Eustace. Yeah, I just feel like there's something else there that has to do with gender stereotypes. But right now we're talking about Eustace. So we do kind of see more of his whining, complaining, seeing as everyone is out to get him during this storm and being really thirsty and just quite an annoying human being. And I think that sets us up for what's about to happen to him. And so what does happen? They land on this island. They do. They land on this island. Everyone's starting to work. And Eustace thinks that he can just slip away and go have a lovely nap and come back refreshed. He doesn't want to work. He doesn't he's, want to he's work. He wants to get no out of the work. rest. Yeah. Is very selfish. He is. So as he goes away, he starts to get lost, and there's a fog that comes there's down. There's a fog that and makes him even more lost. So Eustace, he's he's wandering along. At this point, the sun comes out. It starts shining, and the fog dissipates. Mm. So here we go. We talked about the importance of the sun and the voyage of the dawn treader. Here it is. It's coming out. Yeah. The fog is dissipating, but he's lost. He doesn't know where he is. But he sees this dragon. That kind of just dies all of a sudden in front of him. Yeah, it's like a very old dragon. Yeah. It uh, takes a drink of water, it looks at its reflection, it groans, it keels over and dies. Yeah, and then he sees that there's treasure and he starts to get like obsessed with the treasure and thinking of everything he could do with the treasure and he puts this uh, bracelet on his arm and then he falls asleep. It's very interesting because there are a lot of elements here that remind me of Edmund entering the White Witch's castle. Interesting. One is the role of moonlight, which we'll see a little bit more later on as we progress, mm -hmm. as, as Eustace wakes up from his sleep. Yeah, yeah. But there's moonlight shining on the floor of the cave. There's the moon in the background. It's mentioned over and over again. Yeah, just like Edmund's journey to the castle. That's so interesting. And, and for Edmund... You can see that there are these shifting shadows, all of these illusions. He's uncertain. Yeah. Things don't look the way that they really are. And that's kind of what's associated with the moon. It's associated with that confusion. Yeah. Also with fog and moisture, too, which was some of what we saw in Eustace's even getting here to begin with. Edmund is always thinking about his Turkish delight and the power that he can have. If the white witch makes him a prince, here Eustace is focused on the greed and on the gold. It's interesting, too, that Lewis says, oh, Eustace hadn't read the right books, so he didn't know what this pile of stuff was. If he had read the right books, if he had read fantasy novels, <laughs> then <laughs> he would have known that, of course, dragons collect treasure. Yeah. And that's Now, this is important for understanding what's going on here. Collecting treasure, that greed, is a key part of what dragons are. Yeah. It's also a key part of who Eustace is, unfortunately. To that, yeah, after he wakes up, 
he finds out that he's become a dragon. There's kind of this very long description of him realizing that he's become a dragon Mm -hmm. because he doesn't realize this first. He thinks there's this big shadow behind him mimicking all of his movements of a monster. When he realizes, it says, he had turned into a dragon while he was asleep, sleeping on a dragon's herd with greedy dragon thoughts in his heart. He had become a dragon himself. Yeah. So... It's more like a manifestation of what he was on the inside. The greed and selfishness on the inside is what turned him into a dragon. Exactly. It's such an interesting kind of narrative pattern that's being followed here. It's really the same one that we see in Beauty and the Beast, which is a story that's older than the Disney version itself. But the idea that there's this prince... And he has this beastly nature inside of him, but he still looks like a prince on the outside. Yeah. So the enchantress comes and transforms him into a beast so that his appearance reflects who he is within. Yeah. But as a result of that, Belle comes, the beauty, and changes him on the inside so that he's inwardly a human, a good person again. And then as a result of that... He's ultimately changed so that he's a human both inside and out. Yes. That's kind of ultimately what we see with Eustace here. The dragon within him comes and manifests itself in his shape in this transformation. Yeah. And ultimately that brings him back to turn him into a real human inside and out again. Yeah, we see him um, when the people on the Dawn Treader finally figure out that he is Eustace. It says... It was clear to everyone that Eustace's character had been rather improved by becoming a dragon. So he like helps them, he shelters them, he like gets trees for them and stuff like that. They sit up against his belly to warm themselves yeah, with a the fire that's inside of them. He lights fires for them. Yes. It's very nice. It's uh, He's just a completely different, he's not a person, he's a completely different character. He's a completely different person yeah. on the inside. On the inside, yeah. He's remorseful. You can even tell that once he he becomes a dragon, he looks at his reflection, all of this happening in the moonlight, Mm. in the confusion. The realization comes over him. He's afraid that Caspian has left, but you can already see the transformation starting to occur because he realizes, wait, no, Caspian wouldn't have left without me. Yes, okay, here, pause here. I want to unpack this. Please. Last time I briefly mentioned there's this theme of like the stories Eustace is telling himself. Yes. So what you just said, like that Caspian's out to get him and he starts to wonder, maybe that's not true. I actually have a quote here. It says, an appalling loneliness came over him. He began to see that the others had not really been fiends at all. He began to wonder if he himself had been such a nice person as he had always supposed. He longed for their voices. He would have been grateful for a kind word, even from Reepicheep. Um, I think Lewis is pointing out that coming to grips with reality and recognizing how the stories you tell yourself are not really true is like the first step in lasting Mm. transformation. Mm. He has to recognize who he is before he can change. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, I think this is sort of a very personal story to me. I think it jumped out to me because this is something I've been kind of processing in my life the past few years of like... I think everyone has stories they tell themselves about life, like 
if we're victims of our circumstances or like if we're in yes. the right and other people are in the wrong yes. or like I can't do this or just any way we perceive ourselves. There are These all are the stories, stories that Eustace believe. is telling himself exactly. all the time. He's blaming others rather than exactly. himself. Yep. And, but they're almost like subconscious stories. Like you don't realize you're intentionally doing them or anything, but that subconscious part of it makes it hold a lot of power over your mind and your ability to grow as a human. So I think for me, like in life, when circumstances felt out of control, I feel like I had a lot of Eustace in me, like Mm. just being very critical or like kind of having a posture in my heart of like, I'm, I'm right. And everybody else is wrong. Or especially being like a victim of circumstances in my life. Yeah. Um, and I don't like to think of myself like that, but I think that's I was I was very used to used to see, but I I convinced myself that that was true, but I think slowly I began to like wonder here and there, like what if that wasn't that person's fault? Like what if it really was something I did, or what if I really do have more control over certain things in my life than I thought I had? Um, And I think that helps me kind of navigate where reality really was. So like taking ownership over those messy parts um, is like taking a really honest, good, and hard look at where you are and what you are responsible for. And it's only from recognizing and like understanding that that you can only start to have any kind of transformation whatsoever. And I think, again, this like stuck out to me for my life because it's just very relevant for me right now. However, I think it is important that Lewis pointed that out. He notes that specifically as one of like coming right before Eustace's character transformation, um, recognizing the stories he told himself so that he could start growing from an honest place. It's a lot like the principle underlying 12-step programs. Yeah. You have to own where you are and what you've become. You have to acknowledge your powerlessness over your problem before you can begin to change. And that plays into his his physical transformation as well. Yes, yes. Should we get into that? Let's. Okay. This is a really interesting form of storytelling. We don't actually see Eustace being transformed in real time. We see it as a story Eustace is telling Edmund privately. Yes. So Edmund, he's gotten up early in the morning and then he sees, there's this form here. Who is it? Wait a minute. It's Eustace. I thought Eustace was a dragon. Wait, what? What? And so Eustace sits down to tell him the story. Yeah. And he's very confused by it. He's not sure whether or not it was a dream. Yeah. In fact, he even talks about how moonlight actually shows up over Mm. and over again in the story. Mm -hmm. And moonlight is associated with that confusion and with that... And with that dreamlike nature that we sometimes see in reality. When he sees Aslan, there's no moon showing, but moon is shining on Aslan. Exactly. Hey! Aslan is the source of the moonlight, oddly enough. In a story where Aslan is so often associated with the sun, in this episode he's associated with moonlight, which I think is fascinating. Maybe it has to do with more the mystery that Aslan has for Eustace, because Eustace hasn't encountered Aslan before, yeah, and doesn't even really know who he is. Yeah, 
That's, That's why this is such a confusing encounter for Eustace. Mm-hmm. What happens in this encounter? Let's recap okay. that. Here's what happened. Eustace felt Aslan saying, he didn't know if he heard it, say, follow me. So Aslan leads Eustace to this beautiful pool. And Aslan says, you must undress first. So Eustace realized that this meant to scratch off his scales as a Mm. dragon. Um, So he scratched them off and saw his underskin was still rough. So he scratched again. And there was still a lot there. So he had to scratch his skin off a third time. And then Aslan... But he was still a dragon. He was, yes. And now this is interesting because normally we see often in stories the pattern of try once, try again, the third time is different. It's the three little pigs. Oh, I'll huff yeah. and I'll puff and I'll blow yourself yeah. down. But no, the third little pig has a house of bricks. Yeah. Oh, you try and you try again. But no, the third time there's something different. Not here. He does it a third Ed, time and he still can't get deep enough. He still can't get deep enough. We've exhausted what normal storytelling and the natural course of things and what Eustace's own strength can accomplish right. here. Right. So then Aslan says, you will have to let me undress you. And I have a quote here of what happened. Do you want to read it, Stephen? The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought he had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. And I think he talks about how it was like ripping off a scab and it hurts, but it just feels so good. I remember that, that so clearly squirm. from my childhood. Oh, ripping off a scab. I did that often. Okay. <laughs> These are the things you remember. Yep, yep, yep. So uh, then it says that the skin came off thick and dark and knobbly looking. And then Aslan picked him up and threw him into the water, um, which... Eustace said felt so good and then Aslan said to come out and that he uh, Aslan said I will dress you in the clothes I have prepared he has to actually reach down into him and change something in his very nature he basically has to kill the dragon yeah but he saves Eustace nonetheless yeah this is something beyond what Eustace is able to accomplish it's a power outside of himself that has to do it to him which is saying something I think about how Lewis views moral improvement and moral transformation. It's not actually something we can do for ourselves. There needs to be a divine power from outside of us that fundamentally changes what is within us. Yeah. I wonder if when Aslan says, you must undress first, the emphasis is more on you must undress first. Hmm. I don't know if that's right or not, but... He certainly wants him to try to do it himself so that he can see that he's not able to do it. That's my point. I feel like there's something a lot deeper here that resonates with me beyond just like surrendering to God. Maybe because the phrase surrendering to God is kind of lost its meaning to me and how much I've heard it in my life. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. There's just something I can feel as very deep that resonates with me of letting, recognizing that no matter how hard I try, I cannot, I cannot try to be a worthy person on my own. And I think, you know, viewing this, that story through that lens of how it personally affects me um, makes it very tangible and powerful. 
Absolutely. No, but There's I so guess I'm, I'm, guess I'm saying, no, I feel like we need to focus on this. I just, I guess I'm saying like, do you know what I mean? Like there's something that's deeper than just like, oh, this God isn't a moral self-improvement you. project. Yeah. And sometimes even perhaps, perhaps what I hear you saying is that sometimes in our religious language, we couch moral self-improvement projects into the language of surrendering to God. Yeah. But the reality must be something very different. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. We're talking about something far beyond a moral self-improvement project here. There's something that's sort of... if I can tell that if I were to really like deeply understand the depths of what it means to for God slash Aslan to be the one to transform me, it would like change everything. There's something that shakes the depths of my soul about it. And rightly so, I think. It's just so hard to put into words. It is hard to put into words, and that, I think, is the beauty of symbols and storytelling. Lewis is able to capture this idea in a story that we can identify with, resonate with, and speaks to a part of us that's deeper than words or rationality. Exactly. Yes, that's the thing. Ugh. <laughs> this is why reading these books drives me crazy, because there's something so much deeper that's just like impossible to put into words and try to explain that this is how it's affecting me, but it's like on such this deep soul level, you know? I do. Oh my gosh. It's good, isn't it? <laughs> good book. <laughs> good book. Yep. Well, up. Five out of five. Five stars. Yep. The end. <laughs> do you have any more insights onto Eustace's transformation? Absolutely, I do. Give it to me. That's what Pam said to Dwight in the office when she requested for him. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk speaking of symbols let's talk a little bit about the symbolism involved here we've already talked about the planet narnia connection that michael ward made connecting the voyage of the dawn treader with the sun but we want to talk about the sun and dragons i think in particular because both of those things show up here quite a lot in very significant ways we said that the sun is associated with alchemy which is trying to transform base metals into gold, the transformation of one thing into another. And we see a transformation happening here in Eustace. Eustace turns into a dragon and he turns back into a boy again. And Shannon is laughing at me. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not laughing at you. I just, <laughs> I just, I don't know why. I, I don't know why my mind is like this this morning. But after you made that office reference and you said Michael Ward, I was picturing Michael Scott. <laughs> okay. It's because the book is actually about dragons. <laughs> Stephen just made a Michael Scott face. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. My funny bone is very sensitive this morning. <laughs> Okay, okay, unpack dragons. I am actually very interested in this, I promise. Great. <laughs> dragons. So, um, so we talked a little bit about alchemy, about transformation. Um, also, the sun is associated, as I said before, with the god Apollo. Mm -hmm. One of the epithets of Apollo, or one of the roles that Apollo has, is sauroctonus. 
the dragon slayer. Ooh, Apollo is okay. a slayer of dragons. There are a lot of dragons in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There was the one that died. Mm-hmm. There was Eustace himself. Yeah. In the next chapter, there is the sea, sea dragon, serpent. the yeah. sea serpent, and then there's also the head of the Voyage of the Dawn of, of the Dawn Treader itself. The ship okay, yeah. is in the shape of a dragon. There are a lot of dragons here. What's this all about? Interesting. What is the meaning of dragons? Is the question, and we see dragons quite a lot. In, in world mythologies and ancient cultures, what do they symbolize? Dragons tend to be associated with chaos, but also with the chaos and the dark and unruly desires within human nature itself. Okay. Let me tell you a little bit more about what I mean. In the Babylonian creation story, there is a sea dragon that represents chaos that's killed by the god Marduk. Mm-hmm. And that is how creation happens. Okay. It's part of that cosmic struggle between chaos and order. The same happens in the in a Canaanite story about the god Baal who slays Lotan. Okay. Zeus and Thor also slay dragons as well in Greek and Norse mythologies. The Bible itself, the the ancient Hebrew Bible, draws on this kind of imagery and actually uses the Hebrew word for lotan, which is leviathan. Okay. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is pictured in Isaiah 27.1 as the one who will ultimately slay the dragon of the sea. The sea also representing chaos, and so it's another picture of order triumphing over chaos. Yeah. And this is one aspect of Apollo, (laughs) <laughs> Let's zero in on the idea of dragons symbolizing dark and unruly desires within human nature. And especially greed, though, in this story, in right? In this story, especially, yeah. it's greed. All dragons collect gold. That's what Lewis says. Oh, everyone knows that. That's what I think Edmund even says it, of course. Dragons collect gold. Yeah. Everyone knows it. That's what dragons symbolize, especially here. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, that same kind of greed shows up on Deathwater Island. Exactly. Where their greed for the gold... Uh, that the water can transform things into they're comes disil- out. They're disillusioned, like they're in this trance or something. It takes over them. Yes. Their their lower base unruly desires take over them. In The Great Divorce, which is a book by C.S. Lewis, it's sort of about heaven and hell, but it's a lot more than that. It's a very symbolic kind of book. It's also very short, by the way. Any of you who are interested in learning more about just generally how does C.S. Lewis look at the world, there's a ton of that crammed into The Great Divorce. Even beyond whatever you happen to think about heaven and hell, there's a lot in The Great Divorce that can be really interesting. But there is a person who is being offered to come into heaven, but on his shoulder is a little red lizard called Lust that's trying to hold him back. And so there it's like a miniature dragon that is embodying the base, dark desire of lust trying to keep him back from entering heaven. So that's another place in C.S. Lewis that we see it. But yes, you said greed as well. In in Eustace in particular, we see that greed. You are what you worship. Mm. You are what you love, in the words of James K.A. Smith. This is something that um, ancient Christian writers picked up on, and especially we see it in the Hebrew Bible. The prophets talk about it too. In Psalm 135, it says that the pagan nations worship idols of silver and gold, 
that cannot see or hear or move. Yeah. But those who worship them will become like them. Yeah. They will become unaware, unable to see or hear or move. This is what happens to Eustace. His dragon-like heart is allowed to take over him and ultimately turn him into a dragon. Right. Because of the greed inside of him, he basically turns into greed. Right. In The Great Divorce, there's a story of uh, a woman who is just grumbling all the time. And what happens is that this is allowed to continue forever. And she's ultimately isolated from under other people and in the end just turns into a grumble. She's not a person anymore. Oh, interesting. All of the people in The Great Divorce in C.S. Lewis's version of Hell are allowed to have their inner dark desires take over them oh, and deform them in such a way that they are isolated and distanced from one another, just yeah. as Eustace is lonely and isolated from humanity. Yeah. And they ultimately turn into something subhuman. They yeah. turn into nothing more than the desires that they have, yeah. the sins, the, the evil, the brokenness that's inside of them. That's what starts to happen to Eustace. It looks like that may have been what happened to the Lord Octesian, in my view. Mm. I think that he was the dragon. I do too. And ultimately what happened was that he died as a result of it. Yeah. His dragonness, his greed, his inner dark desires destroyed him. And that's what would have happened to Eustace if Aslan hadn't come along. Because here's the story. Aslan is the true and better Apollo. Aslan is the true and better Baal, Thor, and Zeus. Because mm. Aslan is the real Sauroctonus. He mm. is the dragon slayer. Mm. But unlike all the... dragon the, slayer. He, Aslan is the dragon slayer. But here's the thing, unlike, he, he is order triumphing over chaos and yeah. darkness. But unlike Thor, Zeus, and Apollo, he can slay the dragon, but save Eustace. Oh my god! The old Eustace dies. He genuinely dies. Yeah. He doesn't just change. He's killed. But a new Eustace is born. And I think we see the imagery of new birth show up. As the sun is rising, when Eustace is telling Edmund his story, oh, it particularly yeah. focuses on this. The, the sun oh, is rising, and they see the morning star yeah. low on the horizon. This may be a reference to Venus. Venus is the morning star and is associated with fertility and birth. And so just as this is dawn for Eustace, this may be a suggestion that it's new birth for him as well. We also saw the morning star, interestingly enough, in the stone table scene, uh -huh. as the sun was rising uh -huh. the morning uh -huh. of Aslan's resurrection, yeah. there may be a connection there as well. You, the old Eustace is dying oh and a new gosh. Eustace is coming to life. That's like the best Easter egg ever. An Easter egg? Wink, wink. Oh, <laughs> so much layered in there. It's crazy. Here's the thing about dragons. They're, ice, they're isolated from social life, and that's what your inner darkness does to you. Yeah. Eustace cannibalized the other dragon. And that here's an I interesting actually, thing. Yeah, that was interesting that Lewis pointed out. That was disgusting. I had completely forgotten about that from before. There is nothing a dragon likes so well, the book says, as fresh dragon. That is why you seldom find more than one dragon in the same country. There's something about 
your dark desires that leads to competition and selfishness. You have to devour and destroy the other. That is the nature of hell in Lewis's mind. Okay. There's a lot more there that you want to unpack. I can see it in your eyes. I think that's enough for now. That concludes the first half of our discussion on chapters 5 through 8. Tune in next time for part 2. music at jacobparada.com. Oh, man. I noticed you have some good notes here, too. I didn't even notice that connection. That's really good, though. Baptism? Baptism? Yeah. You didn't? Really? I didn't notice that, no. Water is associated with new birth. Yeah. He's born of water and the spirit, as Jesus says. Yeah. Yeah.